Please do join me in taking out your Bibles once again and turning to Acts chapter 27. As we go to God's Word, let's go to Him once again in prayer. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we just sang, we are bound for promised land. And we thank you, Father, that it is your land, the God of promises made and promises kept. And Father, as we make our way to the promised land, help us to rest and rely on Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as we approach the end of our series in Acts, I want to make a few comments about the title of the series. Looking back at our history and moving forward in our mission. As we look back at our history, what do we see? We see God's faithfulness to his people over and over and over again. And what What should our response be to that? As we look back at our history, we should all be greatly encouraged. God is faithful to his promises. And as we move forward in our mission to declare the gospel, to let our lives reflect that we belong no longer to ourselves, but to Jesus, as our lives reflect that saving work of God in us, what do we see? Once again, we see God's faithfulness to his promises, and therefore, we can be confident. We can be both encouraged as we look in the past, but we can also be confident as we look to the future. Now, we'll see God's faithfulness to his people and his promises on display in today's text, a detailed historical account of the loss of a ship, but the saving of many lives. Now, if chapter 27 uh, was excerpted from the scriptures and a novel, it would be a cliffhanger, wouldn't it be? A page turner. I can't wait to see what happens next. If it was a film, it would be an adventure film of of danger and distress and, and hope and rescue and people rising to the occasion and people not rising to the occasion. Remember last week in the calm, in the storm, we looked at verses 13 through 26. We noticed that there was a calm displayed by Paul, not before the storm or after the storm, but rather in the storm. And we saw from the text that the calmness and the confidence of Paul is anchored in an awareness of God's presence. Paul knew that the Lord was at hand. He had a recognition of God's ownership. He was the Lord's servant. He was no longer his own. He had been bought with a price. He was like a sheep of the shepherd, a child of the king. He also had a commitment to the worship of God, to the service of God. That anchored him. And finally, we saw from the text that he had an unwavering trust in God. He believed God's word. He trusted God the Lord to do what he said he would do. Now to set the stage, we need to begin with the last few verses from last week. So I want to read from verses 22 through 26 once again, as that will help us 
and lead into where we're at today. Paul says this, beginning in verse 22 of chapter 27. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Today, we're going to see the unfolding of the declaration that we must run aground on some island. Run aground. Now, ships are designed and operated to to be in water. On the water, not on the ground. And the easiest, the quickest way to be fired as a commanding officer of a United States Navy ship to be removed from command, to be relieved for calls, is to run your ship aground. I know of no case where the captain of the ship that ran aground was not relieved from command. It's just, it's your ticket out of command. You run the ship aground. Now, Paul had said, Again, yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. And remember, he ended that that little speech with the statement, we must run aground. This has got to be tough for for Navy folks, folks that like ships, to hear this. You must run aground, that divine must. Here, right off the bat, even from last week, we see an awareness that property will be lost, but not life. Think about that for a moment as you look at your own life and what you and I are trying desperately to hold on to. Material possessions, reputation. Um, What is it that in the end is going to be burned up, lost, taken away? but not your life. Jesus talks about people following him, losing all things, but gaining their life. Paul speaks to the Philippian church that he'll write later when he gets to Rome of everything is a loss except for knowing Jesus Christ. You know, if our life is a ship, if what we possess can be equated to kind of the ship. At the end, we're going to lose it. But there's something that we won't lose. As Stan mentioned, his father is headed home. He's not going to take his house. He's not going to take his skill of labor through the years. He's going to take the one thing that will last, the relationship with Jesus by faith. We're going to pick up the story now, moving from the storm to the shipwreck. Uh, The best way to approach our text, I believe, is just for me to read through it all, and then we're going to go back and make a few comments. Paul, uh, Luke, the historian, the theologian, continues, verse 27, 
When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. It will give you strength for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when, they had said the, when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. We're going to open up and explore this narrative account of the shipwreck by directing our attention to three things that I believe can be seen from Luke's historical and theological writing. First, the promises of God that are made and kept. Second, the participation of all those involved. And third, the picture that is before us. First, let's take a look at the promises, the promises of God that are made and kept. Uh, you know what we've said here before, you know, the Old Testament promises made, the New Testament promises kept, the Bible, the word of promise. And we heard earlier from one of our uh, readings, one of our scripture passages that the Lord said, I will be your God and you will be my people. That central theme of promise that runs throughout the scriptures. But here we see in Acts 27 some specific promises for this situation, remember, there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Paul has gotten that divine word. It's a promise. The ship will be lost, but no lives will be lost. There's another promise. We must run aground on some island. 
And we just heard a moment ago this promise that unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So there's specific promises here in Acts 27, specific to this situation. But let's step back for just a moment and think about the promises specific to Paul. Remember when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, Jesus said, you are going to be my witness, my ambassador to the Gentiles. You are going to be. You will be. It's a promise. We see that reiterated in Acts 27 as Paul is before Agrippa and he speaks of his conversion. That the the Lord had told him, you will be a witness to the Gentiles. And earlier in chapter 23, we remember Paul getting confirmation by those words that you must testify also in Rome. Paul's got a promise that despite the difficulty on land, he's going to get to Rome. He's got the promise that despite the difficulty at sea, he will get to Rome. So let's step back even further and think just for a moment. Just consider a couple of promises made to all of those who trust Jesus, who believe in him. Just a couple of the many. Jesus says what? Come to me. Come to me, and I will give you rest. What a promise. In a day that is designed for no rest, for an economy that's built on no rest, Jesus says, come to me, and I will give you rest. And he also backs that up with another statement, that whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You come to Jesus He says he'll give you rest, but on any particular day, on any particular occasion, you're not resting. You're anxious. You're troubled. You're trying to white knuckle it through. Is he going to cast you out? No. What a promise. A promise of rest. A promise of permanence. Where do you find Where do you and I find these promises? Well, of course, it's in God's word where God has spoken and then by the continuing ministry of the Holy Spirit, God continues to speak, right? It's a living word, living and active. Now, there's a danger, isn't there, in promises? Because you and I know the name it and claim it crowd. Sometimes you and I can look in the mirror and see the name it and claim it crowd, right? But there's a real big danger in that, and that is separating the promises from a person. You see, these promises aren't abstract. They're not doctrine only. They're connected to a person, Jesus. If you take the promises and separate them from the person, there's no life to them. So before we move on, let's ask ourselves this question. How are we doing when it comes to knowing the promises of God and believing the promises of God? Because I know that this past year, and in fact my entire life, I'm constantly faced with those questions. Do I know God's word? Do I believe God's word? I still 
step back when, when I read those words that even the demons believe. The demons can do better on a theology exam than I can. But they don't have saving faith in the one whose word it is. So we see one theme is the promises of God that are made and kept. We see these promises made to Paul and through Paul, notice, being kept. God is indeed sovereign, but we know that man is responsible. And so let's take a look at man's responsibility as we look at the participation of all of those involved. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Our text, I believe, provides one of the clearest examples in Scripture of the interaction, the coordination, and the harmony between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. You see, for centuries, human thinking has given us two either-or options to answer the question, why does a particular event in history happen? If you were listening closely to the narrative, there were a lot of things happening. Sailors were doing this. Paul was doing that. Soldiers were doing this. Paul was doing that. Um, uh, The centurion was doing this. The answers that human thinking has, has given have been either fate or free will, and and fate is where human agents are not causing history through their choices, but history is conditioning and causing their choices. And we know many ancient religions and modern religions just leave everything to this impersonal fate. But then on the other hand, there's free will where human choices can alter the events of history. But Paul's actions here in particular on the ship show that Christianity does not buy into either fate or free will. Rather, it insists that both, it insists uh, that in both, everything is determined by the plan of God and our choices and our decisions matter. They're significant and they make a difference. You see, God fulfills his promises, but that doesn't eliminate the importance of human actions as the means God uses to carry out his promises. So let's take a look at several human actions, keeping in mind some of the promises that Paul is going to make it to Rome, that all with Paul are going to be, are not going to lose their life. The ship is going to be lost. They're going to run aground on some island. Look at verse 31. Let's just go down to there. Paul recognizes the situation. How does he recognize it? We don't know, but he recognizes what the sailors are doing and he takes action by speaking to the centurion. And the centurion directs the soldiers to to cut the ropes. The boat is gone. In verses 34 through 30, excuse me, 33 and 34, Paul does what? He urges the passengers and crew to eat. Paul is reassuring them of the protection promised by the living God. He uses this this common biblical metaphor that we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament that not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. What's the most detachable parts of our body? Our hair. And yet, not a hair is going to be lost. We see in verse 35, Paul 
presides over an ordinary meal and yet gives it a Jewish thanksgiving. It's not a celebration of the Lord's Supper as some people might say, see at first glance by some of the language used, but it's a testimony of his faith in God who was about to deliver them. Here's the public thanksgiving to the God of grace that bears witness to the peace amid life's storms that Jesus gives through the new covenant that we do indeed see through the Lord's Supper. Here we see Paul is an integrated Christian. Dare I say he is a balanced Christian. He's got a spiritual sense. He's also got common sense. The crew needs to eat. You know, sometimes the most spiritual thing we can do for one another is encourage one another to take a nap, to eat healthy, to exercise. God has created us body and soul, and we we do a disservice to people when we separate the physical from the spiritual to an extreme. Paul is balanced. He's got spiritual sense. He's got common sense. He's got faith. He's got works. He's an integrated whole. Well, let's take a look quickly at the sailors and the soldiers, the army and the navy there. Um, The sailors, what do they do? They panic and they attempt a desperate plan to save themselves at the expense of everyone else. They decided on their own to abandon ship. But it's utterly selfish, isn't it? It's going to cause indirect harm to the passengers because if the crew goes, the ship will be lost at sea. But the soldiers, on the other hand, they, they are prudent and they are men of duty. And they know that if any of these prisoners escape, their life is on the line. And so they instead of being like cowards and running to save their lives, they're going to stand strong and they are going to kill the prisoners. Both are utterly selfish. They're focused on saving their own lives. Finally, let's take a look at the centurion. Remember, Julius is his name, the one who was kind to Paul, who gave him leave to go ashore at Sidon to be ministered to by the church. Remember that God uses the kindness of unbelievers at times to care for his people. Julius is displaying continued kindness and growing respect. Julius didn't protect himself by allowing his soldiers to kill the prisoners. Rather, he protected Paul. Amazing, isn't it? We saw it ashore in Palestine. God uses the Roman military. God uses the Roman civil government to protect Paul, to protect the gospel. It's amazing, isn't it? God uses all things to take care of his people. So before we move on, let's ask ourselves a couple of questions. Do we thank God for the kindness of unbelievers? I mean, really, this us versus them? If you look at Jesus' ministry as recorded in the Gospels, his disciples were all about us versus them. 
Jesus knew that his disciples and the pagan Gentiles needed the very same thing. A new heart. A new life by faith in the promised one, the Messiah. I don't think we'll ever know the extent that our kindness to unbelievers can provide a hearing for the gospel. And I think we can also be provided with a hearing for the gospel when we receive the kindness of unbelievers. God is in control. God rules. He will use all things for the good of his people. And then finally, another question, not finally, but another question is, it's obvious that the centurion respects Paul. You know, ministers of the gospel, according to our book of church order, according to, are, are supposed to have a good reputation with outsiders. Now, to be sure, the unbelieving world is not going to understand the believing world. But do they see me as truthful, honest, a man of integrity? Do they see you as truthful and honest, people of reality? Never underestimate the witness for the gospel through us receiving the kindness of unbelievers and us being kind to believers. And what does the kindness of God lead to? Repentance. Repentance. Well, the interplay between the promises of God and the participation of man gives us a picture, helping us grow in our understanding of the salvation that God provides. Because let's finally take a look at the picture that is before us. See, what, what I believe Luke has done, he's, he's painted a picture before us. He's enacted a parable. Uh, last week, we saw that historical details matter, but so do the principles. And so does the picture that emerges. Now, do you get nervous with that language? Picture? Parable? Do you think that's dangerous because it's somehow moving away from the truth? I think some people do think that. Oh, we've just got to have solid truth. Jesus told stories to illustrate truth. Jesus told parables to illustrate truth that would confuse some who didn't have faith, but it would provide clarity to those who did have faith. When Jesus wanted to illustrate something, look at the lilies of the field. Look at the birds of the air. You want to know what the kingdom of God is like? Let me tell you. There was a certain landowner. To people who were confident in their own righteousness, Jesus said, two men went up to the, people, to the temple to pray. One man a Pharisee, the other man a tax collector. Was Jesus a man of truth? Absolutely. Was Jesus a storyteller and an artist painting? Yes, he was. So we see before us a picture of salvation and indeed an enacted parable of salvation. One commentator, William Larkin, writes this. The assurance of physical salvation through belief in the divine message to Paul and the commitment to remain with him is an acted parable of the essentials of spiritual salvation. 
believing the gospel message and solidarity with the gospel messenger. You see, how do we understand something that we can't see that is real? By growing in our understanding of something that we can see and that is real. And here is a picture of salvation. Now Luke, Luke's narrative account is historical along the lines of, this is history, Christ died. But it's also theological as in for our sins. See, Christianity is historical. If if it didn't happen, we have no hope. And the very title Acts reminds us that it's history. And it reminds us that it's the acts of God. And it reminds us that the gospel is not good advice of what we are to do. It's good news of what God has done. And you and I need to be reminded over and over and over again of that. Because my default value, and I believe your default value, the first thing is what do I need to do? As opposed to let's stop and recognize what God has done. Just as the Ten Commandments come forth to a redeemed people, rescued people, people who are no longer slaves in Egypt. So we see really a couple of pictures. The picture of salvation, the loss of all things, the ship, everything in the ship, on the ship, it's a loss, but lives are saved. The loss of everything but your life. Following Jesus is both loss and gain. It's also a picture of the saving presence of Jesus, isn't it? We see that as seen through his servant, Paul. Interestingly, Paul's presence on the ship assures the deliverance of everyone. Remember? Verse 22. Everybody with me is going to survive. Everybody with me is going to live. The fact that Paul stays on the ship ensures that everybody's life physically is saved. And that's completely unlike Jonah, whose presence on the ship threatened to destroy everyone's lives. Paul needs to stay on the ship. Jonah needs to get off the ship in order for people's lives to not be lost. Well, let's wrap up with just a couple of final thoughts. The title, Saved by a Shipwreck. I don't know many Navy officers who would actually resonate with that title. Saved by a shipwreck because their career is over. They are humiliated. They are undone. And yet, running aground saves the life of all 276 people on board. Saved by the loss of a ship. Go through the Gospels. See how many times Jesus encounters people that say, I want you, Jesus, and I want this part of my earthly life too. I I want Jesus and the benefits he brings, but I also want the benefits that the world brings. With Jesus, he says basically it's all or nothing. 
it's me plus nothing. And what we seek first, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things are added. He'll provide for us. We lose everything for the sake of Christ. He'll take care of us. He'll provide for us. So ask yourself right now, if faith in Christ, your faith in Christ, gives you an awareness that, you know what? I'm gonna lose a lot of stuff. But I'm gonna gain something that cannot be taken away. I'm gonna lose that which is perishable, but I'm gonna gain that which is imperishable. And finally, we just see in our text a theme of Christianity that emerges as a contrast from our text. Saved by the loss of a life. You know, it's interesting that everyone makes it ashore. But one theme of Christianity is there is one who, as it were, goes down with the ship. You see, Paul staying on the ship ensured that there would be no loss of life, and Jonah being thrown off the ship ensured that there would be no loss of life. When Jesus was ministering before a crowd, he was talking about the signs of Jonah, and he said, something greater than Jonah is here. My friends, with Jesus, someone greater than Jonah is here. Because you see, on the cross, Jesus was, as it were, thrown off the ship into a tumultuous sea of God's wrath in order for us to be saved. You see, the wrath of God was propitiated. It was exhausted on Jesus, who for us and for our salvation, as the Nicene Creed reminds us, came down from heaven, lived a life of obedience, died a sacrificial atoning death, raised victorious and triumphant from the grave, ascended into heaven and will return to finalize, to complete our salvation. My friends, as we move toward the Lord's Supper, remember that for you and I to live, someone had to die. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word that on first glance looks like a diary of a bad storm at sea and a shipwreck. And while it is that, Father, it is so much more because it helps us grow in our understanding of who you are, that you are a God who makes promises and keeps promises. You are a God who can be trusted. And you are a God who has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Oh God, be pleased to grow us in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Here, our